Good morning, everybody. So good to see you. I am still, I feel like I'm still a little bit in COVID because when I came in here and saw how many people have come out to church this morning, it just it is so good. So why don't we give that a round of applause? Give yourselves a round of applause. You're so, so good. Welcome to everybody online. Um, my name is Glenn. If this is your first time, I'm one of the pastors here and I'm excited to bring the word of God with you. Didn't the worship team, thank you, love. That's my wife, in case you just think that I call everybody on worship team love. I put my keys in your, uh, in your bag, just so you know. Um, and you all saw me do it. As I'm doing it, I thought, yeah, can't do anything privately. It's all good. Um, it's great to uh, share the Word of God. I'm going to come there just uh, in a second. Just two quick things by way of announcement. As, uh, as Jenny has already said, we've kind of got two congregations together right now. We're heading into the fall, and the renovations are on a steady pace. We're very excited about that. Uh, but this Wednesday night, if South is your home, or if you just want to be a little bit nosy, that's fine too. Uh, but this Wednesday at KGF, why is it at KGF? Because it's in the mission. That's why we're doing it at the KGF. We're meeting at KGF uh, to talk about what next steps look like, uh, vision, what the fall is going to look like. I'm going to answer some questions, have some prayers. It's just going to be a really good night. So this is this Wednesday night at 6.30. Thank you. It's the Holy Spirit speaking. Um, 6.30 this Wednesday. And then straight after this meeting, as Jenny has already said as well, I just want to reiterate, we do have a lunch. We'd love for you to stay. And you can grab lunch and join us into the uh, finance meeting, which is our pre-meeting before the larger church meeting, which should be starting at 12.45. So you are welcome to come. But if you do want to come into the finance meeting, we're going to start really quick. Um, So uh, please grab your lunch and join us in there. It all started for me, uh, this particular moment in my life, when, we, when Sarah and I were in our very early 20s. We got married very, very young. Um, I was just, I was 20, and um, we were renting an apartment in Sunny Rill. Those of you, if I said that in Britain, I would have got an instant giggle. Um, for uh, reasons that you can Google later. Um, but Rill was, uh, was uh, it's an interesting town. We lived right on the seafront, which sounds really romantic. It's not, not even slightly. It just means the wind is higher and the smells are more pungent. And, uh, and that, that, was, uh, that was okay. But we were moving out of a rental house, uh, apartment, I should say, or a flat, as we call it in Britain, to our first home. Do you remember the days when you could... Buy a home for 25,000 pounds for us, dollars. I know all the younger ones are hating me right now. I'm sorry, but we were able to buy a home. Very excited. We were moving. This was moving day, and it was chaotic, and Sarah was doing stuff, and I was doing stuff. It was a hot day, which is unusual in, in the UK, and so I'd made myself a really big container of orange juice, uh, just water and orange juice, and I was swigging it throughout the day. Like So I'd walk through the kitchen. I'd grab it, and I'd take a drink and put it down and carry on working, and, and that was my go to drink for a couple of hours. And, uh, and, and so I need you to remember that, just that part of the story, 
Because also in Britain, there's a bit of a tradition where we, we fry a lot of stuff. Uh, for those of you who are British, you kind of get in all a little more romantic and teary-eyed at the thought and the amount of fried food that the Brits can consume. Um, but you, you would often have a, a pan full of what you'd call chip fat. Sounds good, hey? which was basically fat that you would use over and over again. You'd put some fries into it, and you'd just sit in there whenever you needed it. Like, just if you needed to do commando roll into the kitchen, you have a quick chip butty, then you could switch your chip fat on. It's always there. What I didn't know is that Sarah had poured out my orange juice, and because she's very environmentally conscious, even 30 years ago, she poured out my orange juice and poured in the chip fat into my container of orange juice. Now, I'm, not, I'm working at a speed where I'm not kind of analyzing it every time I go through the room. I just grabbed this thing, took a big old swig. It was the perfect color as well. I know wherever she's in the room, she, I can see her, listen to her. You can hear her still to this day laughing, totally unrepentant, set free love. That's all I can say. Um, I took a big swig of this fat. I instantly knew that it was fat, not just because of the taste, but because of the bits, ladies and gentlemen. Immediately bent over, retching in the middle of our old kitchen because of the, I'm going to try it, please. It was disgusting. It is not what I signed up for. It is not what I prepared for. It was not what I was expecting that day. It was a horrible, horrible moment. Can I tell you this? We approach life with our Christian lenses on, and we make assumptions sometimes about things. We think that it's one way. We think it's maybe beautiful water. We think it's a great thing, but actually... When you taste and see it, it's far from actually what we realized at the beginning. And we need to understand as a Christian family that when it comes to what people think in the culture about Christianity, it's far different from what we think they're drinking. Far, far different. And I want to go even further and say this. Sometimes what we think we're drinking is actually far, far different from what God actually intended for us to drink and enjoy. Because somewhere along the line, most people believe, I would say in culture, that belief in Jesus is about a divine, and they might not use this word, pension plan. You believe in Jesus, you get to go to heaven. It's hard for me to describe how unappealing that is to the average culture now. What was, might be appealing to us 20, 40, 60, 80 years ago is no longer appealing. Because people have an image of what heaven is like, and I'm going to say this very gently and lovingly, so bear with me, but they think heaven is going to be filled with Christians. And they don't want to be with what they see as the average evangelical Christian. The word evangelical now has been hijacked. And so when we go, you get to go to heaven if you believe in Jesus, apart from the fact that that is just a tiny, tiny part of the story, it's not the actual drink. It's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is not a divine pension plan. Jesus didn't come with a grand escape plan in mind. Let's just get you out of this nasty earth and get you to heaven. 
It's a stretch to prove that biblically, like a real stretch. If your eschatology is based on where we go eventually, you're actually missing out on most of Ephesians, which talks about so much bigger. The plan is so much more powerful. Going from Genesis all the way through to Revelation, what you actually see is the Bible talking about a new heaven and a new earth with King Jesus as king, where Christians are going to spend eternity living, working, enjoying, worshiping, feeling the grass between our toes, enjoying the beautiful weather under the reign of Jesus. We are not going to spend all of eternity flying around heaven with harps like baby angels. There is nowhere in the Bible that talks about that. It says like angels. It doesn't say you become an angel. I don't want to become an angel. You see... When we go outside in this beautiful weather and we feel the warmth of the sun in our faces and the gentle breeze, and I'm thinking, if we could just stay like this for the rest of the year, amen, I'd be very happy. We are created to enjoy with our senses. And personally for me, I love my wife and I love her gifting. But the thought of spending billions upon billions of years just singing worship songs? Give me something to do. If you're a Christian, you're very blessed. You will have something amazing to do for the rest of your life. You see, Jesus came with a narrative that wasn't an escape plan. He came with a, he, Jesus culminates this amazing narrative, which is a rescue story. That he says, come and live a new life, a new vocation, if you like, a new calling, a new purpose, a new fulfillment. And it's called kingdom. That you, Glenn, you, friend, are going to, as a Christian, you are representative of the kingdom of God. That we've been called to be good stewards. We've been called to live a life that actually emulates and show people what God is actually like. That's our purposefully chosen word, job. That's our job. Our job is not to twiddle our thumbs, wait until we get to heaven. Nowhere are you going to find strong theological argument for that. So this beautiful rescue plan that Jesus on the cross, the whole narrative of him on the cross culminates there. He says that, you know, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we get to live on earth with a reflection of heaven. He bridges heaven and earth. You can, you can, almost, you can actually say this, on, in Kelowna as it is in heaven. That's God's plan. Now, we get to play and enjoy heaven now. Now, it might not feel very heavenly. And trust me, when we actually get to new kingdom, new heaven, new earth, then all sickness, all sadness, all tears, all mourning, everything broken in the world will be corrected. Just imagine this for a second. How many of you, and I want to show our hands, okay, we can do it. it, it it's like, okay. How many of you have ever enjoyed a, wait for it, because I know you're all excited now. How many of you enjoyed a view that has actually taken your breath away? Hands up if you just didn't put your hands up. <laughs> okay, I got you all. See, now that's just a win, because now I can go on Monday morning and say there were so many hands shown on Sunday morning. If in a broken world, we can have a view that is so beautiful that it leaves us speechless, can you imagine what that's going to be like 
in an unbroken world. This world's broken. Imagine it unbroken. Welcome to the new earth. And so we actually get, as Christians, to go into the world with some taste of that in our mouths and our lives. That God's not done yet. That's why we're called ministers of reconciliation. Reconciled back into God's original plan for the earth. That's what it's all about. We are ministers. We are agents. We are representatives of God's amazing plan. We come with life-giving water in our lives. And so, friend, if regardless of your age, you are thinking that Christianity is just about getting a divine pension plan ticket into heaven, you are missing out on something incredible. Incredible. See, Christianity at its its core is about transformation, personal transformation, community transformation, global transformation. That is what it's about. Without transformation, Christianity is just a, a club, and it's not. It's what we give our life to. We give our life to transformation. Jenny said before, our vision, our goal is to see lives, what? Transformed by Jesus Christ in the Okanagan Valley. That's our goal. That's our vision. Why? Because that's Jesus' goal. That's Jesus' vision. And the amazing thing is, this transformation actually, this is amazing, works. It works. One of my favorite things to do is to read about, I'm going to get to David in a second, is read about revivals. Revivals are amazing. It's almost like the gap between heaven and earth just gets shortened for a period of time. And we actually experience something that is miraculous, which actually I could argue the miraculous is just actually what we're meant to be experiencing all the time if we're reconciled back. One particular revival that is very close to my heart because we spent so long living there is the Welsh revival. Imagine this. Just think about Kelowna for a second. I'm not going to go into great detail about the revival. Enough to say Wales was far more broken than you can imagine Kelowna being. The addiction, the abuse, hardened uh, mining towns where uh, men would go into the mines, come, go straight to the pub, get drunk, go home, beat up their wives and kids, and it would just be this cycle. And there are accounts of people in the bars, sat at the bars with a pint of beer, suddenly starting to cry into their beer. I'm not talking metrosexuals here. Oh, that might have been offensive. Okay, I'm not saying that if you like, guys, if you like to do good hair, it doesn't mean to say you're not tough, all right? I'm not saying that. I'm talking about hardened miners. Hardened miners crying into their beer because they've just come under conviction of the idolatry and rebellion and sin in their life. Then rushing, banging on the doors of the ministers in town saying, please tell me about Jesus. Now you might go, yeah, right. Well, it was actually called the land of the white glove by, actually quoted in the Welsh Coast Pioneer. Think Castanet. This, this, this whole country was so under the shadow and the beauty of God and his revival that it changed, radically transformed individual lives, families, communities, and a country. A country. That it was so radical that uh, miners who had stolen for a living as well from the mine, because they were paid so poorly, they would just hide, I don't know how, shovels and stuff, and then go and try and sell it 
that actually there were signs put up outside mines pleading for the miners to stop returning the stolen goods with piles of shovels because they felt convicted to bring it back. That the pit ponies who were used in the mine were so used to being cussed at that actually the whole mines were shut down because the pit ponies were like, I don't know, because all the cussing stopped. So they didn't actually know what to do. The land of the white glove, you can read about this on this amazing revivallibrary.org. Let me quote, judges and magistrates commented upon the effect produced by this movement upon proceedings in their courts. Judges had, instead of the usual long list of cases awaiting trial, blank sheets of paper without a single name. To celebrate the occasion, pairs of snow-white gloves were ceremoniously handed out to them to be preserved scrupulously as a witness to future generations of the reality and the blessedness of real revival. You can actually read about it in one of the local papers. Jesus' transformation is radical, and it's alive, and it's a well, and it's our calling. Now, revival is something that we pray for. Please come to Willow One Prayer. You're going to hear stories tonight from Andy Hawthorne that are just amazing. Come and listen. Come and be inspired. Come and pray because we're praying for heaven and earth to close down a little bit so we can see people coming to know Jesus. But in the midst of this, we have a calling where we represent this new kingdom, this new heart change. And that's why we pray. I want to be able to stand and look my 16-year-old son in the eye and go, Jesus and church is the best adventure that you can give your life to. Because you will actually see people's lives changed. Rather than looking him in the eyes and go, hey, do you want to worship forever and go to heaven? Now, he likes to worship. But actually... To align yourself with the plan that God had from the beginning, that we have the responsibility to take this good news into our community. And so when we come to David at this part of his life, what we're actually being introduced to is King David. Remember I said a few weeks ago, King David at his best is a beautiful reflection of Jesus. King David at his worst is often a really good reflection of us. King David at his best, at the end of his life, he is blessing and praying for his people. And you'll see his heartache as a king is to see his nation transformed. His heartache as a king is to see the presence of God come. He wants a place where the Ark of the Covenant can be kept, the temple. Now, if you know the story, David was told by God, David, you're not going to get to actually build this temple. Solomon will get to build it because you're a, you're a warrior and, 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 and he wanted his son to build it, which is really interesting given the topic I'm going to talk about in just a second. So this generation of people are longing for the presence of God to come into their, into their city. They're recognizing the importance of it and they're willing to align their lives with it. What's really interesting about this passage is why I love preaching the Bible is the Bible won't let me get away with preaching what I want to preach on. I'd be happy to preach on revival for the rest of the morning. And there might be a time for that. But this passage shows us some evidence that actually is a little bit surprising of life transformation. You're going to see evidence of the transformation, heart change of God in this group of people, Israel's hearts. And you're going to see evidence of it through a particular manner of living. 
and we're not going to like it for a bit. So bear with me. Because it touches on a topic that we get very sensitive about. So let's jump in. I'm going I'm to read um, through the passage pretty quickly, and then we're going to go through it, and then we're going to tie it all up at the end, and, uh, and praise God, it'll be, it'll be good. It's blessed me as I've prepped it anyway, so I'm, uh, I'm happy already. <laughs> all right, let's get going. Therefore, this is 1 Chronicles 29, verse 10. 1 Chronicles 29, verse 10. Therefore, David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel. Oh, no. Hang on. The order is... Oh, I went on too quick. All right. Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able to thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on this earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have, we have prov- sorry, all this abundance that we have provided for the building, you, a house for your holy name, comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our Father, Fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the heart of your people and direct their hearts towards you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all, and that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. Then David said to all the assembly, Bless the Lord your God. And all the assembly blessed the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed their heads and paid homage to the Lord and to the king. What an amazing passage! What has this got to do with revival? What has this got to do with us representing the kingdom well? What has this got to do with tra- transformation? You're going to see evidence as I work through of the transforming heart of God. And I also then want us to consider how our hearts have been transformed and how that has been evidenced within our generosity of living. More than anything, David wants the transforming presence of God in this nation. And the focal point of his plan is the temple, the church. This church, this temple represented a place of confession. Sounds familiar. Willow one prayer and praying. A place where God's presence could be felt. A place to worship. A place to learn. A place to gather. A place to serve the poor and see justice. This is as close as David can get to having the people gather together as a kingdom and then go and represent God's kingdom into their nation. But David, as we'll see in previous verses, started off by doing something really remarkable. This is just in the previous passage. Notice what David does to start this plan off. 
I have a treasure of my own, gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. 3,000 talents of gold, the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house. So you understand, one talent is 75 pounds worth of gold. That is worth around about 10 years of wages for the average worker. If you were to actually calculate the amount of money that David gave to the church, it is between 6 and 8 billion, with a B, dollars. It is a life-changing gift. He literally emptied his treasures and gave it to the work of God. Doing two things. Changing his lifestyle, guaranteed. And remember, Solomon was the richest man on the planet, arguably still representative across history. So he starts again. But David's lifestyle generosity uh, changed his, sorry, his, his generosity changed his lifestyle. It had to, because he empties his treasures. And secondly, declared that he was not a god. Because in ancient Israel, the nations then saw the king or the queen as a god. This is not just someone who's worth billions and hundreds of billions of dollars giving away six to eight billion. This is somebody changing their life. It's lifestyle-owing. Why did he do that? What is he trying to show? He's trying to show that his heart has been changed. He's trying to show that God is number one. He's trying to show that he's been transformed. He's setting an example to the people in his generosity He's showing that he trusts God implicitly, and he is amazed by the generosity of God, and he loves God entirely, and he sets God before everything else. Because look, he says, but who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able to thus offer so willingly, for all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. He recognized something fundamental, friends, that everything that you have is God's. Everything. Now, David would have every right to go, hey, I worked hard for this. I was chased around a bunch of caves for you know, half my life. I worked hard for this amount of money. But he didn't do that. He said, look, regardless of what's happened in my life, it's all God's. So all he's doing is just actually giving God what is his already. His skills as his talents were God's. Our skills and talents are God's. The air that we breathe is God's. The fact that we woke up this morning is God. The health we enjoy is God. So now, here's what's going to be happening in some of your minds. Great. This is the one Sunday that I invited somebody to come along church, and Pastor Glenn is going to talk about giving. Like, why is this happening? Can I tell you something? If you come to the meeting later, you're going to hear some incredible news about our giving and generosity as a church. You guys are amazing. Amazing. We are heading into uh, what could be our best year in a long time. Isn't that incredible? Because of your generosity and your giving. So this isn't a drive-by giving guilting shooting. This is actually a recognition that God has prompted many of you, not all of you, just being honest, many of you to give very regularly 
and very cheerfully and very generously, that you recognize that all things have come from God and you're giving back to him. But can I tell you, me preaching about generosity and how this represents kingdom life is, uh, is about as much to do with the amount of money we get as a church. It is about me preaching about communion because we want to get rid of the, the juice and the bread in the kitchen. Me preaching about generosity is not about increasing the giving, but praise the Lord if that happens. It's actually about us aligning ourselves with God's plan for us living out his kingdom. It's about us being good stewards of what he's given us. It's about us being good representatives of who God is. And actually, society now and all research aligns with that if you want to give more, you will be more happy, more rejoicing, more free, more at peace, The most generous people are all those things, regardless of your income. So I don't want you to start thinking, okay, I don't have enough money coming into my house to give. That's not what this sermon's about. What this sermon is about is actually the core of what generosity is about and how it can change nations. Do you know that money and wealth is mentioned over 2,000 times in the Bible? That is more than prayer and faith combined. Jesus preached about money and wealth more than any other subject apart from the kingdom of God. The world talks about money all the time, but we don't mention it in church. Because there's been some crazies in the past who have stood up in pulpits, and I would say blasphemed God by saying, hey, you send me some money and I'll send you a bit of rag and you can slap this on your forehead and it'll heal your Aunt Joan. What? That is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about living generously and by doing so, showing the world Jesus. Kingdom living. So really what Jesus was communicating is money is about so much more than money. And we know that, don't we? We might not like admitting it, but we know it's true. That actually, further to that, generosity is a statement about trust and love. We get that from the passage we've just read from David. You have been so generous to me, God. It's not like I'm being generous to you. I'm just giving back what's yours already. You've been so loving and shown me so much grace that I want to give back to you towards the institution, towards the temple that is going to represent you in this kingdom. So what Jesus and the Bible and David is showing us here is that money and how we see money and how we see our lives is actually a reflection of the orientation of our lives and our hearts. It's a comment about which kingdom is our focus, the kingdom of the world or the kingdom of God. It's a comment about what we rely upon and what we place our trust in. Because I've had the... uh, the blessed opportunity, as many of you have, to travel to places in the world where there is no plan B or C or D. We have a whole alphabet of plans. That if plan A, if God doesn't come through, okay, then I can go to plan B and I can go to plan C. And Places in the world where there is no plan B all the way through, it's only plan A. David, even though he had multiple alphabet worths of plans, he was worth billions. He said, actually, I've only got a plan A. It's God and his church. It's the temple. That's plan A. And more amazingly, he was willing to give them money even though he was never, just think about this, ever going to see the fruition of it. 
Which reminds me of a verse in Hebrews, which says they lived in the land as sojourners and strangers in the land, having never seen the promise, but seeing it far off. It takes a gutsy, faith-filled, God-loving, grace-filled, spirit-filled church of people who are willing to say, I will give to the work of the church, and I don't necessarily need to see the fruit of it. And as we, and Pastor Phil's going to talk more about this later, but as we look at this place, it's going to take you and I a step of risk and faith to get this place ready for the next generation. And can I say this lovingly? We might not see it. Are we all right with that? Because it's not about the money. It's about giving it. It's about generosity. It's about living generosity. And here's the other thing, and this pinches me so hard. You can't get away with going, well, I'm just so generous with my time. (laughs) David wasn't generous. He was generous. Well, yeah. We want you to be generous with your time. We want you to be generous with your talent. God, more importantly, God wants you to be generous with your time and talents. But it actually comes down to the core of where we place our hearts in. And something amazing happens when David gives, the other leaders gave. Then the leaders of the father's houses made their free will offering. They gave for the service of the house. And if you look at this, they basically gave the national economy to the church. That was a happy day for the executive pastor. Can you imagine that? Cheryl, because Cheryl's in charge of all the counting, I can just imagine her screaming from down the hall and me running. Can you, that is an amazing offering. Because the people followed the king. The king gave everything. Does that sound familiar? And the leaders gave everything, and then the peoples followed. So I need to be very careful when I preach like this, because every time I preach about giving, <laughs> Sarah's like, well, what are we going to do without giving? I guess we're going to have to give more. I need to be able to look you straight in the eye and say it needs to pinch. It needs to be generous. It needs to be cheerful. It needs to be regular. You will never outgive God. You see, David goes on as we read that the people rejoiced because they had given willingly. So they gave and then they ran and they were like, that was amazing. Look at them rejoicing with a whole heart, offered freely. David and the king also rejoiced greatly. That is party town. That is jubilee. Can you imagine the church lunch? Wow. They were celebrating. There's three things I want you to notice. They gave freely. In other words, not under compulsion. It literally means not enslaved to the money. They gave out no compulsion. They gave wholeheartedly. They gave cheerfully. This word wholeheartedly is a fascinating word. It literally means shalom-heartedly. The idea of shalom, this complete and total satisfaction and contentment in God that what they were doing was completely countercultural to what we experience. Because right at the beginning, when the world first broke under the rebellion of Adam and Eve, idolatry became the number one thing. That They were making, it says this in Romans, where they made the created their object of worship rather than the creator. That's idolatry. And out of idolatry comes rebellion and sin and ultimately death. 
So you can trace sin back, and you can see this in Paul's writing, you can trace sin back to the ultimate sin, which is replacing God, number one commandment, with something else. And our world is quick to replace God with money. And so when we talk about shalom-hearted, what it's actually doing is taking money, anything at all actually, off the throne of our hearts and putting God exactly where he's meant to be because we recognize that shalom, we are completely satisfied and content in God, that you are free. And the beautiful thing is, as you look at our culture, freedom is the ultimate God. They want freedom of choice, freedom of will, freedom of location, freedom of everything is about freedom. And so the very thing that Jesus offers is ultimately freedom. That you can be free of being enslaved to the idols that we've generated in our world. That you will be so closely aligned with the Imago Dei, image of God, right at the beginning. That you will be living out the actual design that God created for you. And then we get to take it into the world and go, look at him. Everything that has been given to us is to make much of Jesus. That you can look at the amazing car or the beautiful house or the holiday. And, and you know what, by the way, the Bible is clear that God, one of the reasons God gives us money is to actually enjoy. And it even mentions wine in the same sentence. My wife likes that. Not me, of course. God wants us to enjoy good gifts. He doesn't want us to make idols of them. And so when we talk about sin, what sin actually is, literally it means missing the mark. That the center is what God's total creation was about. And now, we're, so, we're not even hitting the target. Like We're all over the shop. But hitting the mark is aligning with what God's plan was for us in our design. And that's what's beautiful about generosity, because we can go into the world and we can live, and generosity is just one aspect, but we can go into the world and we can actually say, look, God, Jesus was so generous to me, let me be generous to you. That because of what Jesus did, King Jesus, I'm going to follow that same thing. And there was great rejoicing that God's aim and design for us is freedom, it's life, it's fulfillment, it's living generously, it's experiencing wholehearted shalom, satisfaction, and contentment. The very thing, friend, that you are seeking is the thing that Jesus brings through his death and resurrection on the cross. And so ultimately, the people of God were moved to give because a giving God had moved them. That's worth taking a photograph of. Putting it on your fridge with your new fridge magnet. Fancy, eh? If you didn't come to church this morning, everybody got fridge magnets. Just saying. Stick it on your fridge. The people of God were moved to give because a giving God had moved them. The people of God were moved to give because Pastor Glenn made me feel guilty. <laughs> no, it doesn't say that. Don't quote me. They were moved to give because, well... I suppose. No, it's like, God, you have given me everything. Can I tell you, giving actually is a natural outworking of our worship. When we worship God and we see what he has given, you cannot but help give. If you're struggling with that, I'm just suggesting that perhaps that's the time when you get on, the hand, on your knees and just start thanking him, believing. And so the temple, I'm going to bring this to a close. The temple was a place at that time where people could be reunited to God's presence and plan for them. 
In many ways, this temple bridged the chasm between them and God. I love the writing of C.S. Lewis, and this is from The Weight of Glory. Listen to what he says about this. The sense that in this universe, we are treated as strangers. The longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of our inconsolable secret. Accepted by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart. That's the promise. That as this chasm is closed, that we accepted by God, we can respond to him, we can acknowledge him, we can welcome him into our hearts, into the heart of all things. The door in which we've been knocking all our lives will open at last. You see, Jesus, when he came, he says, you don't need the temple anymore, you've got something better. I am the temple, Jesus said. Tear my body down and in three days I will rise up again. He says, I am the bringing the heaven and earth together. Believing in me allows you access, if you will, into this new kingdom life that you then go and be agents of reconciliation. He doesn't kind of go, oh, hang on, there's a ticket into heaven, well done. He says, now go into the world and make disciples. Go into the world with that which I have given you. I have closed the chasm for you. Now be representative of that closing to the people who you live with. That's why Christianity is the greatest adventure, the greatest joy, the greatest calling, the greatest vocation. Your vocation, Christian friend, is not what you do. It's what you've been called to. What you do facilitates your vocation. Your businesses, your jobs, your roles, your relationships, the people you hang out with, the people you're connected with, all placed around you by God so that you could be representative of the closing of this chasm. Jesus is the real temple. And then as David goes on, he says, our days on earth are like a shadow. Then there's no abiding, O Lord our God. All this abundance that we've provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and it's all your own. And then he goes on, I know my God. I have seen your people who are present here. What he's saying is these days are just a shadow. Jesus, in in the closing days of his life, he said this, just like in the days of Noah. And then he refers to uh, the days of Lot. Can I tell you whose days these are? Ours. These are our days. These are our days to take that which God has given us and take it into the world. And there will come a day when we're held accountable to that. When we are actually looked upon as being the hope and the answer, Jesus in us for a broken, hurting, and lonely world. These are our days, friends. These are our days. And their giving facilitated it. Their generosity facilitated it. We love scriptures like this. Cast your cares on him. That sounds great. I need that. I have lots of cares. And I like casting because fishing's good. I'll take that. Come unto me and I will give you rest. Love that. I feel like I need a nap now. That would be great. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Yeah. Maybe if I did a little bit more casting and a bit more resting, I think this might be for someone else. Yeah, and that's definitely not for me. That, that cross, I'm not sure whether I'm, I'm, I'm game for that. These two, absolutely. Slap them on your fridge, fridge magnet, welcome. These two, but this is the calling, friends. 
for us to actually come on our knees and cry out to a God, knowing that it is his will to see people come to know him, to come to Willow on prayer and be inspired, to gather as a community, to generously give to the work in, his, uh, in the city. And then from our generosity to go on to, into the world and live generous lives, to open up our spaces that we keep closed, to open up our doors literally and welcome people in, to go and look for the strangers and the lonely and the hurt, not just so you can make projects of them to share the gospel, just, but so that actually you can live life alongside them and show them the chasm that has been reduced in your life that you can actually invite them into this new adventure called Christianity that is so much more than just getting a ticket to heaven, that actually gives people a new calling, a new plan, fulfillment, purpose, vocation, in a world that is crying out for purpose. Can I tell you, those of you a little older, we are surrounded by young adults and youth who are waiting to give their life to something. That they are constantly moving jobs. This is true now, statistically. Just after a few months, they move. A few months, they move. A few months, they move. And you know what? You can't outpay them. Because what they want is fulfillment and purpose and something to give their life to. And so as Christians, we have this amazing opportunity to align ourselves with the design of God. That our trust and our love in a generous God leads us to take him seriously. And passages like this seriously. So where do we start? We have a, a membership course. This church is about transformation. This church is about generosity. You are about generosity. A great place to start is if you're not sure, is to actually engage, not just to attend. Engagement looks like giving, praying, sharing your story and the story of your church, serving. All these are different ways that you can engage and you can learn a lot about it in the membership course video, which is willapartchurch.com slash membership on our brand new website. So go and if you're not a member, if you're not engaged, if you want to learn more, then we encourage you to do that. But for the rest of us, and me and you included, it's actually it starts with us spending time with Jesus at his feet and thanking him and recognizing how much he has given to me. And how much more I can give to him. And it may well start with your wallet. But it starts with our knees. And friends, if you've come to this church this morning, I can stand here and say that the Lord has been so, so kind to us. That we haven't just weathered through COVID. That we have flourished through COVID. And that might sound arrogant. But I, I'm, I'm the numbers and figures guy. And that is one evidence, biblically, where you can see engagement. And can I tell you, this church is primed. I can feel it, and I think many of you can too. That as we go back into the south, as we go into these different corners of the city, that God is ready to do a new thing. And I've been around Pentecostal circles a lot, and can I tell you, I got a bit tired after a while. They're constant talking about God doing a new thing. And I'm like, well, when is he going to do it? Like, I'm almost 50 I'm ready, but I actually, for the first time, feel it. And so join in. Join in with the plan. Join in with what God is doing. Come to the church meeting. Cheer and rejoice at the end. Shane jokingly said, you're going to do the offering at the end. Oh, I was tempted, but I'm not. But I will say there's a debit machine out there, just saying. And we do online giving as well. 
Right, Shane? Did I do good? Okay. Let me pray for you. Let's thank God together, worship team. Let's celebrate together as we sing and rejoice in the house of God. He has given us so much and he is so worthy. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together. Oh, Lord, we've got 10 minutes before our finance meeting starts. Praise you, Jesus. Let's pray. If you feel comfortable, and even if you don't, maybe just hold your hands out as a sign of giving and receiving. Dear God, we are so grateful for your generosity to us. That Jesus, you gave your life, that you gave the ultimate example, that Lord, you are our representative, that there was victory on the cross of idolatry and rebellion and sin in this world. And Lord, you call us to a life, and true life, life more abundantly, your word says. And so Father, I pray that even as we sing, that Lord, you would fill us with your spirit, that Lord, that we would be inspired and encouraged by your word to spend increased time with you, that, Lord, that we would live generous lives. That, Lord, that we would align ourselves with you and your call for us in your kingdom. And, Lord, more than anything, Lord, we pray for souls to be saved in this city. That people, Lord, like, the, like it says in Zephaniah, would grab us by the sleeve and say, take us with you because God is with you. Let that be our testimony, God. And Father, I pray for Willow on Prayer tonight. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that we will have a mighty, powerful, spirit-filled time together as a church as we pray for revival, as we pray for souls to be saved, as we hear testimonies. Lord, I pray that your church would rise up and take that which you have given us into a world that is desperate, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. You're so good to us, so kind to us. In your precious name, amen.